Hello, this is Michael Zuber, and I wanted to thank you for choosing to spend a little time with One Rental at a Time. My life's mission is to help investors close 1 million rental properties. In order to tackle this crazy goal, I will need your help. If you like this episode or any of the content we produce, please share it on social media. If you get one of my books or perhaps one of our 500 cards, please take a selfie and tag One Rental at a Time. Now on with the show. A weekly series that I love doing because I get to hear from all of you. Yes, the one and only Millennial Mike scours the YouTube channel for comments, looks for the spicy ones, looks for the consistent ones, and occasionally he also throws in some good comments. Folks, we're going to hear what's on your mind this week. iBuyers, HELOCs, cash and refis, housing market, oh, all this stuff. How you doing, buddy? I'm excited. I'm excited. And you know what's kind of been a little bit sad? Over the last, we've been doing this for several months now, but over the last few weeks that we've done this, there have been a few less spicy comments if you, as you've been proven right with some of your predictions. <laughs> a, little, a little bit of the bass has gone out of some of these guys' voices. And so I'm, I'm looking for our, our frequent flyer angry commenters and I'm just not finding it. So I, you know, take that for what, it, for what you will, but we definitely have a good list, list of questions today. Uh, as you said, we are gonna talk about things like taking out a HELOC or cash out refinance to buy real estate. Is that smart? or stupid? Uh, what should you do with your retirement account if you would rather be in real estate? How to buy that next rental? A bunch of things like that. Uh, so what we're going to start with first uh, was a question that came in an email. And for those of you out there, if you want your question answered by Mike in this type of format, then leave a comment down below, either in this video or any video, emails, send me a message on Instagram, get it to me and we'll get it here. Uh, so this question comes from uh, Jordan. And Jordan says, uh mike i appreciate all your videos and you giving what you see as the truth with regards to the real estate market and what you see happening i used to watch those doom and gloom channels for longer than i would like to admit but they've all proven useless to say the least i would like to get into real estate market but i don't know the right place to start besides just keeping the momentum in the right direction i'm 27 with two boys and a wife i have a roth ira that has thirty-five thousand dollars in it i would like to pull all of that money out but I don't want to do it until I know where to park it. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated. Thanks in advance. So I get questions like this um, a lot. And, and, and one of the things I, I've hopefully been proven over time is I try to stay as consistent as I can. So first off, congratulations. I think more people need to block, delete, unsubscribe from these Doom channels. They've been too wrong for too long. Uh, they're not helping anyone. So just stop the madness. So congratulations for getting off and uh, now just doing the work yourself. Second, uh, I see a lot of people who have access to capital somewhere, whether it's 35 grand in IRA, a 401k account, something. And their answer or their question is, hey, how can I, how can I use this best? How can I use this best? And I just want to remind people Step one of my process is you have to understand what an average deal is in your market. That's just it. Now, most people, when I say that, have no idea what I mean. So again, I talk about a buy box. You need to create a buy box. It needs to have 20 to 40 active listings in it. You need to look at it every day. You need to document all the variables. And at the end of 60 to 90 days, you'll know, hey, the average yield in my buy box is 6%. Now, the question often comes, is 6% good or bad? And I say, that's not, that's not for me to say. That's for you to decide if 6% is good enough. I am trying to teach you 
to learn average. Because once you know average, and this again, you six, your job, if you're following what I talk about, is to bust your ass, do the work, write lots of offers, and don't accept anything less than eight. We only do great deals on this channel. But you can't do a great deal until you know average. So hopefully what I told this person in a response was something like that. Get a buy box, look at it every day, understand average, tell you know, tell your wife who's or your two boys, uh, you know, what an average deal is. Decide if average is, is good or you want to go somewhere else. I believe real estate investing is a skill. I believe all skills take practice and work. And until you've done the work, I don't give a shit where the money is. Leave it there. You're not ready for it. Don't touch it. Stop. You know, learn the skill first. Yeah, I, I agree completely. You know, a lot of people, as they start down the YouTube university rabbit hole, they first get motivated or excited about real estate. They're ready to jump in. They're ready to do something. But you need to slow yourself down. This is where you got to use a little bit of discipline. Slow yourself down. Start doing the work. You know, you wouldn't just rock up to a weightlifting competition because you started at the gym yesterday. You'd probably spend six months to a year getting stronger before you finally signed up. Similar, similar idea here. Take the time. Learn it right. All right, next question, iBuyer manipulation. Show. So from at 0000, what do you think the possibility is that instead of the iBuyer push being an overall loser, they actually turn a profit, they did a big money and they went in and intentionally drove prices up and then they mostly sold at those inflated prices, right? Your response was iBuyers will collectively go down as billion dollar losers. So is there no way that some of them might've made some profit or, or turn a profit somewhere? None of the big eye buyers will turn a profit. This was a money losing exercise. This was um, this was the ultimate. Let's build a pile of money and light it on fire. It it just was. They were overpaying. They were using algorithms um, to establish prices. They were assuming future appreciation. They couldn't run a project to save their life. They don't even do good work. No, they're going to go down as billion dollar losers. Mm -hmm. Um. What was this question about manipulation? Because that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah, so he say? said it, a lot of people, a lot of people thought this was happening. There were so many videos on TikTok about it probably a year and a half ago. People were saying that what these iBuyers were doing was coming into a market, buying up a bunch of houses, and then over-intentionally, uh, the last house on a block, overpaying mm -hmm. for it so that there would be a new comp bringing the value up of all of those houses. Yeah. So that I, the theory. Yeah, no, I actually I think I remember some of those videos. And again, that's not quite how appraisals work. It's 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 um that was not some evil plan. However, right. let's let's say this. I think iBuyers destroyed some cities. Now, what do yeah. I mean by that? I think they took a market like Phoenix or Vegas or Sacramento or Austin, and there's probably 10 or 12 of them, and they created artificial demand. And they drove up prices probably 15 to 20% too far. I think they did that. Now, was it intentional? No, I think it was stupid, bad execution, wrong comp plans, all kinds of stuff. It was excess. It was when risk is zero, people do stupid things. Hmm. It wasn't malicious. It was stupid. Now they're I sellers. They're going to take a market below. It's going to snap back. There's something called reversion to the mean. Unfortunately, when reversion happens, it often goes too far. So one of my 2023 housing calls is these markets will see 
up to, I think it was a 25% decline, and then shock everyone. By June or July, they will turn around. Because once the iBuyers are gone, they're gone. They're not gonna they're not artificially buying. They're mm-hmm. they're gonna go from iBuyers to i sellers to i gods. And they'll be gone in the first half. And then the market will come back. It'll it's gonna shock people. Oh my God, Austin turned around, or mm-hmm. Vegas turned around, or Phoenix turned around. I'm like, no shit. One of the largest buyers isn't buying or selling anymore. <laughs> average people now, people. So yeah, I uh I don't think there was a malicious plan. I think it was a bunch of people with an open checkbook doing stupid things with wrong comp plans, which hurt lots of mom and pops, hurt lots of people. No question. It was just stupidity. I don't think it was some evil plan. Right, right. Yeah, they definitely thought they were capable of more than they were because, as we talked about in our first question, they decided to show up at the freaking weightlifting competition day one after not working out and just assume, well, because we've got all this money, we can pay a judge off and win. Yeah, it's it was bad. It was bad. Okay, uh, HELOCs and cash-out refinances, are they stupid or are they smart? That's a question that we get a lot. So at Jake Boss Davis says, could you speak on those who used their ATMs, the pa- their homes as ATMs in the past for a few years? So talk about the folks like me who used a HELOC from their primary residence to buy real estate. Was it smart? Was it stupid? Do you have any advice for these people? Yeah, so I read this question and I wasn't sure which way he was going. So I'm going to answer both avenues. So if you are like Millennial Mike and frankly me, Right. My first four years, I did this four times. So I did this as well. Um, I did cash out refis and I think I had one HELOC. So I've done them both. And I used all of that capital to buy more deals. Mm-hmm. I didn't take a vacation. I did buy a second car. I didn't upgrade. I didn't pay the monthly operational expenses. It was all to buy more assets. Then the second thing I did with my HELOCs is what if I used it, because that was always my last resort, I would not buy anything else until my HELOC was paid off. Hmm. So as long as you are disciplined, I think using it is strategic. In fact, one of the things that allowed myself and the Lumberjack to grow portfolios that are somewhere between 8 and 10x bigger than Dion is we chose to recycle capital. That is a choice. You don't have to do it. Dion has showed us clearly that if you just let the income snowball take effect and then time happens, you can get to a happy, happy place. If you can get financially free on 15 or 16 units, by all means, go for it. Right. So you don't have to. So as long as you're disciplined, I think they're great. But when I read that question, Mike, I think what he was trying to get us to say was lots of people use their ATM, their houses like ATMs like last time, and they bought a car, they bought this, mm. bought that. And now they're underwater. I think sure. that's where he was trying to lead us. Yeah, could be. And I think anybody, I think anybody who uses a house as an ATM uh, is financially reckless. Right. But if you have a plan, both for asset acquisition and then payoff, mm. I think you're a genius. Unfortunately, most Americans are not financially disciplined. So for most people, it's a horrible idea. Mm. If I were to guess, I'd go 80-20. For 80% of you, using your house as an ATM is a horrible idea. Mm. But there's still 20% of us that I would not be here today. I would not be financially free at 45 
without doing it. For me, recycling capital was important, but damn it, I was disciplined. I was really disciplined. Yeah, you know, I think those are some good points that you make. So like you, I've used a HELOC to buy a deal and do the burr strategy. And then I paid the entire HELOC off. When I look at my HELOC and I have to pay the the prime plus one, my rate is prime plus one. I'm like, okay, so, you know, maybe I'm paying 5% on my HELOC, but hard money, hard money is 10% plus points. It's cheaper to borrow from me than it is to borrow from a hard money lender. So that's why when I when I use it, I, that's exactly why I use it because it's the cheapest money that I can borrow to do projects. But it's only for projects; it's not for fun things or for pastimes. So, uh, and then to your point, well yeah, for everybody out there who uh, <laughs> who did, you know, a lot of those luxury watches are going back on the market at half off right now. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, buying that next rental. Michael Martinez three seven two three says, "Can we have a conversation topic about investors getting unstuck? How do I continue the momentum building up and buying a rental?" Thank you so much uh, for the, being a great and awesome mentor. Yeah, I think you. I think when you get to a fork in the road, you can either choose what Dion did or what I did. Just simply saying, and, and many others, right? I'm just using those because they're pretty consistent examples. You could go the Dion route which is probably slower, less action, but probably also more certain and probably less risky. And that is you just let the income snowball take effect. You never increase your lifestyle. And as you get units and uh, your cash flow grows because rents go up and all of these things, you slowly acquire more and more. I believe Dion's story goes something like this. He buys his first duplex. He's house hacking. So he's, he's, he's you know, he, he took his largest bill to zero. And then two years later, he bought the next one. And then 18 months, he bought another one. And then a year later, he bought another one. And right, the snowball, hence the name income snowball, slowly builds momentum. But damn, it's slow. That's one option. It's a great option. It's probably an option most people should take, but it's slower than everybody wants. Right. Then there's my oven, where you get into the game, you get two or three done, time goes by, you have some equity, you go get it. That's an option. The other thing that I did and I've said, but I haven't said in a while is I had a 401k at my employer. I borrowed from that thing every freaking year at my employer. You could borrow to 50% or up to 50 grand, whatever was less, I guess. And I did every year for almost a decade and I paid it off every year. Right. That's just, you know, you pick a payment plan. I chose 12 months and, and paid it out of my paycheck. Again, cheapest money I could get back to your HELOC conversation. Mm -hmm. So there are avenues. Something I did in the beginning also is I had cars that were paid free and clear, right? During 2010, when everything's on sale and everybody was scared, I went and got loans on my cars. So oftentimes when people feel stuck and you want to do the recycle capital route, there are places you, you can go get money, but be careful. It is riskier. Uh, for some people, the right answer is Dion's. I mean, how many people would love to have I don't know what it is, 10, 12 grand in cash flow a month yeah. on 16 units. Mm -hmm. It takes time. It took 10, 11 years, but you can get there. Being consistent for a decade is going to allow Dion to have a life that we can all dream of for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Right. It's there for you if you want it. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when I read that question, 
And I'm thinking, when did I feel the most stuck when it came to real estate? And there was two times that jumped out at me. The first time was when I very first learned about real estate. And I realized I have to do the work. I have to learn the market. Mm -hmm. But even more, I have to save up the money for the down payment. I got to say, and that's tough. You know, at least in my case, I was young. Some people who get started maybe have some money that they're ready to invest. But a lot of people don't. They're like me. Um, I was young. I had no money in the bank account. My first video on my YouTube channel is me making a video saying I have no money. I'm poor. I'm divorced. I don't have custody of my son. Uh, I want to invest in real estate. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm going to document the journey. And it was a long time. It was like a year before I got my first rental property. And I had to work so much overtime, so much to save that money. But once I got there, I was like, oh, I did it. And then the next time that I felt the most stuck was actually on the jump between number one and number two. Mm. But then since then, I've been on what seems to be, as Dion describes, the income snowball, a steady exponential growth curve on the way up where it just gets faster and easier and faster and easier. But you're going to feel stuck at the beginning. And again, we're, we're talking a lot about Dion, who he and I are in a fight right now. We're, we're in a fight because he was talking about my, my out-of-state investing. I'm kidding, of course. But he was talking about my out-of-state investing in Indiana. And then, so anyway, so he and I are in a fight. So I don't want to compliment him too much. Okay, okay. Well, I'm going to stay out of the middle. I don't want to be between a Marine, black belt, and a SWAT officer. I'm going to, I'm going to go uh, over there. I'm going to be out of the way. We're going to take our YouTube blood feud somewhere else. And we'll, we'll <laughs> Not but uh, I don't want to compliment him too much. But another thing that he always likes to say is don't compare your year one to somebody else's year 20 in your case or Absolutely. year 10. Right? Yeah. So you're going to feel stuck, especially by comparison. But you'll get through it if you just keep pushing forward. Yeah. The last thing I want to say on this is I hear questions like this so much. It was the inspiration for my second book. Mm -hmm. 15 Conversations with Real Estate Millionaires was written because I found a book called from Gary Keller that I only read the last 30 pages. They were basically 15 investor stories, a page and a half. I wore those pages out. So I wrote an entire book capturing 15 different stories from different investors because your job is to read the book and figure out what three or four stories you want to read over and over. I wrote that book for this person. Just read the book. It, I, I can't help it. The snowball takes time. Uh, building equity takes time. Read the book. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. Uh, so now we're going to talk about something that we never talk about, and that's interest oh. rates. Are oh. they crashing? You know, it's not like we ever cover this topic, but uh, at Mr. Cool Name 2784 says, I'd like to ask if you think we will ever see 3% mortgage rates again, but I feel like that's almost asking what year do you think the sun burns out? Your that's response was, I don't see 3%, but nothing's impossible, I suppose. So Mike, is there a scenario yeah. where we could get back at any point in the next five years to 3% interest rates? So let's make sure we're talking about the right interest rate. I believe this was around mortgage rates. So it's yeah, not Fed so. funds. It's not this. It's not. So let's, hmm. let's get that out of the way. So I believe it's uh, mortgage rates. And, and let's call it a three handle, not only three zeros. So three nine nine would count. Okay. I don't see 3.99 as the average interest rate uh, in the next couple of years being probable. Certainly. Is it possible? Anything could happen. Right. We could shut the economy down again, uh, but it's not, it's a couple of standard deviations. Some might call it a black swan away. I also think that's really the wrong question. I believe over the next, I think he said five years. Mm. I believe over the next five years, interest rates are going to average below six. And they might even average five. 
That's certainly not 399, but it's right. historically low. Yep. And also it's not seven. I mean, there are a lot of people calling for a housing crash because we're going to go to eight, nine, 10% interest. Mm-hmm. Um, let me also answer it this way. I think 3.99 is more possible than a 10% mortgage rate. Both yeah. are possible. But if you're going to say what's more likely, I would say 399 to give you an example of how unlikely I think 10% is. So that's kind of where I fall down on that. To put it into perspective, too, for those folks out there who are wondering about a 5% average, when I bought my first duplex, this rental back in 2018, I got a 5% interest rate. I got quoted as high as a 6% interest rate. And I didn't take that one, obviously. But 5% is is not nearly as scary or bad as some of the seven and a halfs I've looked at recently. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, uh, real estate markets crashing from Greg B2. He says, during a national housing price decline, is the first market to get hit usually the luxury markets? Your response was San Francisco was the first market crushed across the country. Yeah, so um, the answer to that question is no. I mean, I think national housing crashes, they've happened a couple of times. Now, let's talk about housing. Cra- Usually housing crashes are very regional. Think the oil bust. Think San Diego when the military left. Think um, when uh, when I think it was North Dakota or Montana or whatever, when all the shale left. Right. Usually yeah. it's very regional. Mm-hmm. National housing declines are very unusual, statistically speaking. Usually they go down altogether. Usually it's it's, it's like the Great Recession. Everything went down. I believe what we're going through right now is very different because, as I've said many times, I think the Fed broke the housing market. And when I say that, people don't understand what I mean. I believe the Fed broke the housing market two years ago when they gave everybody and their brother an opportunity to get mortgage rates below 3%, whether that was a purchase or a refi. So what does that mean? That means there's an entire generation of buyers who won't be selling unless there's two or three life events. The average tenure of a mortgage is eight years. I think that's going to expand over the next decade because people aren't going to move. So what the Fed did is they destroyed supply. The housing market is a transaction-based business where you need a buyer and a seller. So when I called the housing crash and was now proven right, we dropped off 40% of transactions. That is meaningful. We're not going back to six and a half million transactions for years because supply is not showing up. Now, in this realm, we are going to see this time luxury and second home markets take it on the chin. Why? Because there's no flipping inventory at first time home buyer homes. There just isn't. The low end of the market, the cheaper end of the market, whatever you want to call that, I call it 75% of the median in your market. There's no freaking inventory. So no, uh, it's not normal. This one is different, in my opinion. Um, Again, a little more context. A lot of people seem to have some sort of heartburn with the idea that just because they have a great payment and a low rate, they're not going to be willing to sell. Some people think that that's not going to materialize, which surprises me because there's already evidence for that type of behavior already. Uh, I think of this young lady I know from New York. Her family owns a sixplex that they've had in the generation for forever. Well, they have very, very strict rent control laws over there. And so they have tenants who are best described as legacy tenants. These people got in 25 years ago. And even if they've outgrown the apartment, even if they'd rather move somewhere else, 
unless they're moving states away, they literally cannot make sense financially of doubling or tripling their rent by moving out of the unit they're in. And even though my friend desperately wants to sell this sixplex, they can't because they have to either buy the tenants out or wait for them to expire so they can convert it to condos and sell the building. So if people are willing to stay through everything because they've got such a low payment in an apartment, I just don't see it being that much different in a house. Would you want to double your interest rate and double your payment for one extra bedroom? Probably not. No, I, I believe most folks are financially illiterate, but everybody understands their housing costs. They look at a mortgage payment, which ideally they pay monthly, or a rent payment. And I talked to the uneducated economist uh, who has a monster YouTube channel, and, and he said it clear as day. And I talked to Lance Lambert, fortune editor for housing, right? This guy is housing everything. Both of them said, we got into a house around 3% money. They're not going anywhere. The uneducated economist says, I couldn't rent a two-bedroom apartment for what my four-bedroom, two-bedroom house on a lot costs. Right. He's not down-selecting and having his expenses going up. Lance Lambert, fortune editor, who comes on every Thursday, says, I should have bought a bigger home because my wife's pregnant. I'm like, go buy some bunk beds. He's like, you're not <laughs> kidding. I'm going to have to buy bunk beds. Folks, it's, 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 the supply is not coming. So this market is going to be, if you, hey, the good news is if you're a financial rock star like Millennial Mike, you can go buy a luxury property at a big discount. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, no, this, this housing, again, it's not a crash. And that's what drives people crazy. It's mm -hmm. not, it, when people talk crash, they usually talk price. Mm -hmm. I've been very clear. I called it early. I've been proven right. It's transaction-based crash. Well, well, you're getting ahead. I got next question. Let me tee you oh. up for this. Hold on. The very next question from Julian Moton123 says, Zuber is the first guy I've heard call a crash in transactions rather than a general crash. And man, he nailed it. Once you see that crash in transactions, you can't unsee it. It pops up everywhere in the news feeds. Thank you for the insight. So my question to you, Mike, is when was, if you can remember, the very first time that you started famously calling for a crash in transactions, and what initially prompted you to believe that that would be the path of a crash that happened in the real estate market? Uh, it was the first time the Fed raised rates 75 basis points and made it clear that there were more coming. Because what did I do? I went back to the 52-year spreadsheet and mm -hmm. looked at what Paul Volcker did. And it's clear as day. Rates go up 400 basis points. Housing crashes in transactions. It's right there for everybody to see. Right. But no one did the work. Mm -hmm. So I called this probably, I think their first bump at 75 was May, I think. Mm -hmm. So I started talking about this and I nailed the number. I said, we're going to 4 million. We went to 4.08. I think we're going to go under four at the end of this week is the next report. But right. here's the deal. I'm now telling everybody we're at the bottom. Mm -hmm. We've got the 40, 45% drop in transactions. Now we bump along for a while and you know we will see where we go from here. Again, I'm not only called the crash. I'm telling you the bottom is here. Now everybody's talking about the crash in transactions. I'm like, you idiots are six months late. Yes. Right? We're already at the bottom. So and we are um, going to have a valuetainment video to react to where they're finally them with, and I like them, but with their expert analysis, they're only just now catching up. To <laughs> so, last question for the day, Mike, very last question, uh, could be, because we do like to end things on a happy note. So from at cash flows, 7858, 
This is from one of your videos a few days ago. He says, Zuber and Prince, the only two that can rock the purple jacket. Real estate investors wear purple. So, Mike, I know you've talked before about why you chose purple, but why don't you tell us that story again real quick to send us out and flash the jacket? Yeah, there you go. Here's the jacket for you. So uh, for, first and foremost, it's just that is my favorite color. Purple is my favorite color. But more importantly, purple meant something to me because uh, I remember going to a bookstore after losing 80% of my stack or 160,000 bucks, which sucked, and finding a purple book. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, it was purple. It stood out on the bookshelf, and that book changed my life. So I've, I've honored it, and that's why my very first book, One Rental at a Time, has the purple one. Yeah, there you go. The one is purple. The house is purple. Um, was kind of a an homage to a book that changed my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, Mike, those are all the questions that we have for today. But we do have a few videos from Minority Mindset, Jaspreet Singh. And then, as I mentioned earlier, from Valuetainment, we're going to react awesome. to, we're gonna do those in separate videos. So we'll see you there. Awesome. Thanks. And again, remember, if you want to ask me a question, comments below, email, tag Millennial Mike on Instagram. He does yes. this. Buddy, thank you so much. Thank you.